Our reading for today comes from Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 16. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength." Let us pray. Father God, we come before your word this morning. Please bless us to hear what you have for us. Give us a taste of heaven this morning through your precious word. Let us have a vision of Christ. Let us see him. Let us lift him up so that we might worship him in spirit and truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I must admit, I had a lot of fun studying this passage this week. So much fun that originally my intention was, and you can see this by the title of my original thoughts for a sermon, uh, was that I would preach through verses 1, uh, verses 9 through 16. But the more I studied, the more I realized I'd have to call an audible. And so this week, we will cover a whole two verses, verse 9 and verse 10. This is really an exciting text, and I think it's occasionally good for us to see how much we can find in just a few short verses of Scripture. Much of last week was really the introduction to the book of Revelation. We talked about how the Apostle John makes clear right at the beginning, in one sense we are to set our pencils down and to just let the word wash over us and to not try to do what so many have done to this book and, and make this book a, a work of guesswork of the worst kind. Um, guessing dates or uh, and if you have like a futurist kind of perspective of this, maybe guessing military equipment or uh, weapons and things like, like, like that. That's not how this book should be treated and hopefully we don't do that in this series. But it still doesn't mean that we can't just rest and kind of marinate on verses in Scripture and Revelation. And so we're going to do that today with these two verses. Our text essentially begins with almost certainly the final apostle still alive at this point in history, the Apostle John. And from the world's perspective, he has been left for dead. He's been exiled, stranded on the remote island of Patmos, a place of irrelevance uh, for the Roman Empire. See, the Romans, uh, they would often do this to those that they considered political um, 
threats. Uh, you had to um, receive an exile decree from either Caesar himself or from a Roman governor. But if they didn't want to necessarily put you to death, uh, we do know, uh, at least not from scriptural accounts, but from fairly credible accounts of Paul, uh, John's life, that John was at one point attempted to be killed by bo being boiled in oil. He survived the experience. But maybe they didn't want to make John a martyr or what have you, but they did the next best thing. They put him in exile on Patmos, which was is still around today. It's much more beautiful than it was at that time, but it's about a 14-mile-long island. It was on the shipping route between Ephesus and Rome. And it was a popular kind of colony for the criminal type. And so for the Roman government, think about this. This is the last apostle. They sort of see this as they, they've recognized by this point, this Christian group isn't exactly a, a Jewish sect anymore. They're kind of a religion of their own kind. Actually, we know from the histories of this time, they start calling Christians atheists. Because the Christians don't embrace the sacrificial systems that can be found even in Judaism, but were found in paganism religion. And so they just kind of think, well, we've gotten the last of the ringleader. He's been left for dead on this remote island, stranded. We're kind of done with this group. And yet here is this moment where... God says, no, 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 I'm not done with my sacred scriptures. Actually, in one sense, the, God has one more final book to add to his canon. And in this book is a book unlike any other because it's captivated the imagination of Christians. It's, it's, it tells us of how even when waves of evil come upon us and rulers seem to uphold wickedness and delight in evil, we can take heart in the fact that Jesus upholds all of history and he takes care of his family, which is going to be a large part of this passage today. This book of Revelation ultimately tells us as the New Testament church, don't worry about what government powers um, and authorities might do. The best is yet to be for us Christians. And that story isn't unique only to the Apostle John either. All of the apostles up until this point, the, the other 11 had died alone. They had died essentially with offers from Rome of saying, recant, leave, leave this Christ behind and we'll spare your life. And none of them take it. John could have avoided being exiled. He doesn't take it. Why? Because while Rome could exile them, they could kill them, rob, beat, and drive them away, nothing Rome could do could ultimately separate the 12, or even us as New Testament Christians within the family of God, from the love of Christ. So as John begins to offer a final word here, there is a vision here, something he holds on to, that if we can also get our hands on to and latch on to, there's something John sees in this moment, and if we refuse to surrender it, there is nothing that we have to fear anymore. It's in having Jesus, laying a hold of him, that we, we find that we ultimately lack nothing that we need. So let us begin to unpack the text and get a better idea of what I'm talking about. The Apostle John begins by letting us know he is our brother. To borrow some San Diego slang at this moment, that's pretty cool. That's really cool. 
You, John, that author of Revelation, that apostle who stood at the foot of the cross, yeah, he's, he's my brother. And if you're alive in Christ, he's your brother too. There's one day in heaven we're going to be able to walk up to individuals like the apostles, like the, the patriarchs, like the prophets. And we're going to be able to say, like what I say to Rob usually, or, so, or Andy, or what have you, Adam, when I see him in the morning. Hey, brother, how you doing? How you doing, brother? And they're not going to give us some funny look or some think it's awkward because we as Christians at our best are a family. And not just any family, we are the most unique family ever, created by God, adopted by God, his sovereign adopted hand. And he has adopted an array of people from every tribe, every nation, from an array of history, all hues. Contrary to some speculation in Waxhaw, the family of God is not just made up of the Pennsylvania Dutch. I remember when friends of ours in Vegas, the Cools, were adopting, it was either their third or fourth child, or if, I think it was their third child, second or third, but they invited us to the courthouse. And so we were there at that moment where the judge decreed that this child was now their child. We saw new life taking place in that moment. A child once set on another course had been adopted into this family, this unique family that loved the child, still preciously loved the child and delighted in it. It was such a beautiful moment. And so when we think about the family of God, we think about the fact that the Apostle John doesn't begin this letter by saying, I'm an apostle. He says, I'm your brother. Let us not forget how precious that is, how there is this reality in the Christian faith that when we look to the hill of Calvary, that's like our courthouse. That's our moment of adoption, where all of us are brought into this unique family with one another. And what is this family to do with one another? As John continues on in verse 9, first, we are to endure tribulation with one another. Now, tribulation is always messy. We as individuals are not at our best usually in the most chaotic moments of life. Like my wife warns, if she hasn't had her coffee in the morning, stay clear. Uh, No, but let's be more serious about it. There are these moments. I remember, for instance, when my wife uh, had her mother pass away about a decade ago, and I was a mess. I was a terrible comfort at that time to her as a husband. Really was poor at it. I was overwhelmed in the situation, and yet I will say there was something to still the family reality is that she knew ultimately, even if I wasn't the best at figuring out how to love her in her grief at that moment in time, that I was there for her. There are still difficult moments or moments where um, we find ourselves in, and, and, and there's this beautiful reality to being still a family that's enduring hardship and pain with one another. And so God is saying part of making us into a family, why he has adopted us into the families that we are in, even in one sense, this can go to a congregational level because that's what John's going to do with the book of Revelation starting in chapter two, is that he's put us in family so that we might grow more united in tribulation with one another in the difficult moments, the sorrowful moments. He wants us to experience them as a family. This is one of the things that most troubles me about the state of things in the world is as churches 
still seen as something not essential enough to go to 18 months into COVID, is that really God's design or somebody else's design? Is that really what God's word says or somebody else says? God says, I put you into a family with one another so that you might endure tribulation with one another. And if we have just continued to just separate ourselves from that family, what are we doing? But there's another reality we experience as a family. We're already a part of a kingdom of God, John makes clear here. We have a great advantage to, versus the original reader here in this moment. John, when he's saying this, he's saying this to a small group, a really small religious group that is um, hardly worth considering. Now we stand 2,000 years later in a Christianity that at least outwardly is the largest religion in the world. We're a part of a kingdom, a growing kingdom of God. The kingdom continues to grow. There will be more Christians today than there were yesterday, born of the Spirit of God, and that will continue forth until the final day. The family continues to add new members of it. New members are made to realize what happened at Calvary, the adoption that occurred and the God who adopted them. But John also says, while we're united together in this kingdom, we must be patient in endurance. We are to be patiently enduring with one another. Christianity is often a waiting game. Very, very rarely does God answer our prayers in the way or time frame or timeline that we want. I know I'm not unique to this reality of experiencing the, the long wait of wanting God to answer something for, for us. You know, yesterday we drove out to Gettysburg. And so what was the question that I, driving to Gettysburg in order to experience uh, Bruce Stocking, kind of giving his historical knowledge of it, what was the question I was asked by my children in the back of the car? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Because we don't like to wait. We're patient. No, we're not there yet. We just got in the car. We got two hours left. We got an hour and 15 minutes left. We got 40 minutes left. We got 20 minutes left. Stop asking me. We're not there yet. And while the Apostle John knows nothing about being in an automobile, he does understand that Christians are, being, are required to wait at times. He wants us to be ready for that. But also he's reminding us that if we have Jesus, we have every reason to be patient as things unfold. As things unfold politically, as things unfold within our lives, because we're in Christ. And because we're in Christ, we, we have everything. And, we're, and God has not forgotten to incorporate us into his ultimate plan of redemption. Well, Gettysburg might not be our ultimate destination with God, he ultimately will take us to that place that he promises that he's prepared, preparing for us in John 14. He's taking us there. So let us be patient. And then at the end of verse 9, John tells us why he's in prison on Patmos. <clears throat> and it's twofold. It's on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus, which... If you think about it a long time, too long of a time, you'll realize that's in one sense the same, the same thing because the word of God tells us the testimony of Jesus. But, you know, it's high time that American Christ Christians stop pretending that the word of God or what we say about Jesus isn't capable of being unpleasant enough on, in the public square that significant people such as rulers and governors would prefer to drive us out 
to put us on our own little Patmos, so to speak, metaphorically speaking, rather than having a voice in it. Just look at John here. How many times do you think he was called intolerant in his life? How many times do you think he rejected the offer just to tone it down a little bit, John? Give, give up on some of this Jesus nonsense and we'll set you free. We know this happened in the book of Acts. We see both he and Peter were given such an offer by the Sanhedrin when they were arrested at the start of their ministry. And yet clearly he rejected such offers each and every time. Going back to American Christianity, for a long time we pretended Christianity is just a standard of values in which we live by. Basically a moral code we ascribe to. But Christian morality doesn't get you exiled to Patmos. Christian morality itself doesn't put you on the hit list of Caesar or governors. What puts you on the hit list of ruling powers and authority is the kind of thing that made up the first word of, for instance, John the Baptist's ministry, or if we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' ministry, public ministry, which is the word repent. That is, turn from your sins. Basically, recognize your wrongdoings. Seek cleansing and earnestly grieve over the kinds of worldly patterns of life and wickedness that just have become routine for us. Have a new desire for God above all things. Change your actions and your affections. Change what you believe. Turn around in one sense. And then just receive the free forgiveness of God, the free forgiveness of Calvary. Receive your adoption there. Turn from it. Don't listen first and foremost to the powers of this world, but listen first and foremost to your God, the creator of all things. That's the kind of message that irritates rulers and kings. That's the kind of message that can get you exiled or in Twitter jail or whatever it is. Yeah, that's the kind of message that can get you canceled. That's the kind of message that gets people upset. We've often settled for a Christianity in America where we think to do right means you are to never upset anyone. And yet you can never get to a place where 11 apostles have already died and John is now exiled in Patmos with such a message following a rabbi who died on a cross due to the Roman powers and the Sanhedrin powers, trying to live the kind of faith we've often aspired to live in America. You know, in this first part of this verse, I didn't want to mention it right away, but when John says, I am your brother and your partner in tribulation, there is in the original Greek, there's a sense in which John is saying right there is the following. It's better for you and I to be persecuted. It's actually helpful for us as Christians. To put it another way, it's better for our Christian family that some people don't like us. John doesn't think the biggest problem in this world is that some people don't like Christians. Actually, the verse makes clear a little adversity for us as a family is healthy for us. It helps draw us closer together. You know, there are, are times where people are, all of us, and myself included, just mean. And for me, one of the things that really set me off is if you're mean to my bride. And if you're mean to my bride, uh, you know, that's, that's when I can get very upset. Even uh, when my daughters are mean to my bride, I make clear, that's my wife. You're not allowed to talk to my wife like that. And it's, it's kind of funny because we have those moments in life, and, and my wife often at those moments, after those moments, she goes, 
I want to thank you. I want to thank you for standing up for defending me in such a moment. When we just had one recently, and she she appreciated that. There's a there's a thing about adversity, and when you deal with adversity with other individuals, it draws people closer together. John has that vision at the beginning here of Revelation. You know, to, to just say this, it would be an idea of just John, though, would be incorrect. The last letter Paul ever writes in his life, and he seems to know it's going to be the last letter he ever writes in his life. In Paul's final spirit-inspired words for the world, he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, everyone, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Let me repeat that verse because it's not the ones we usually cover our doorways with. Apostle declares, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. When was the last time someone persecuted you because you brought the message of Calvary to them? Do you even believe things Does Christianity change you enough that in the public square, the unbeliever would find you worthy of being condemned? Because you represented the clear teaching of Christ. God's word promises us if we're doing this Christianity thing right, we will experience suffering, tribulation, hardship for being a Christian. And we're often busy as American Christians wondering the following Is persecution coming? When the idea of Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, or 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 is more like, wait, 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 wait. You don't have any Christian persecution going on in your own life? Are, are you sure you're a Christian? The Bible knows far less about a middling existence where your faith is never insulted, mocked, or challenged than a life where... Uh, None of that ever comes to pass. This is a faith that we have to have patient endurance to hold on to. While a massive segment of Christianity is trying to make a chameleon-like Christianity in our American culture, a Christianity that just blends with the thoughts and patterns and spirits of our age, embracing all its morals, all its values, all its logic, all its definitions, as fast as they can, because it's seeker-sensitive, they'll say, or something like that. The book of Revelation isn't written for chameleons. It's not interested in promising us all sunshine and rainbows in the here and now. But it does stay, say, if we stick together as a family in Christ, united with one another in the storms of life, in the tribulations of life, in the trials of life, as the weeks turn into months and the months turn into years, Suffering because of who we uphold Christ to be and his word of truth will be better off as a Christian family for enduring such suffering with one another. John could have been his own emancipator. He could have freed himself from the prison of the empire of Rome. All he had to do was surrender the magistrate, the truth, tone down the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says, repent and be saved. Look to Calvary. He's taking your sins upon himself. Be changed by that act of adoption. And yet he was willing to endure pain, suffering, alienation, and even death if he needed to. Why? Because he had Christ. 
What are you willing to endure because you have Christ? What fears are you ready to surrender that you've been holding on to because you have Christ? What anxieties are you now willing to ignore because you have Christ? What words will you say when the world you know doesn't want to hear you rather than being silenced because you have Christ? One of the scariest verses, I think it might be the scariest verse for me in all of Scripture. And, and Jesus' own disciples failed to live up to this verse perfectly when they abandoned him on the night he was betrayed. But Jesus warns us in his gospel. He warns his followers that anybody ashamed of him and his teaching, he says. By the way, he says, in this godless and wicked day. Anyone ashamed of him and his teaching in this godless and wicked day. Then so the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes in the glory of his Father and his holy angels. I have seen Christians take positions on things and surrender on things they clearly know are biblically wrong in order to be declared in the public square on the right side of history. But the only right side of history is ultimately the side our Lord and Savior is on. The one who... History is ultimately the triumph of his story. Let it come, whether by Caesar's word or a president's word or a governor's word or something else matters not. Let persecution and tribulation come if we are forced to decide either to hold on to Christ's word or the word of the world. We are to be a patient family member, saturated in endurance, waiting upon Christ. This is the family that the Lord offers us. So that's the first verse. That's why I could not preach all the verses uh, this week that I originally wanted to. But let's try to sneak one more in before we bring our passage to a close to. And I think verse 10 helps complement some of what John has said in 9. In verse 10, we learn that the vision of Revelation came to him on the Lord's Day. Um, this is a quick aside, but sometimes we bump into Seventh-day Adventists and such who, who argue that we as the New Testament church should be worshiping on Saturdays rather than Sunday. We should keep the Sabbath day. Um, first off, this isn't necessarily the best text to establish this, but the book of Colossians makes clear that uh, we can pick either Sabbath we want to worship our Lord on. Um, but here we see the New Testament tradition of worshiping Christ on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, on the day of resurrection. Here is John, and he is worshiping on the Lord's Day. And think of this. He's been exiled to Patmos, and yet he's still even all on his own, he's still worshiping on the Lord's Day. A somewhat sobering reminder for us, because often we can find the Lord's Day a chore, or at worst, ignore setting aside worship of God on his day altogether. And yet, John's caught up in worshiping God, and all of a sudden, from behind him, comes a loud voice like a trumpet, the voice of God. It enters in and begins to speak to him. Isn't that what we should all long for on the Lord's Day? You know, I, I often, I, I hear it, I don't, you know, I don't take it as criticism, but I'll, you, you ramble too much. It's a 30 to 35 minute sermon. I can't even begin to remember it all. Um, but ultimately, what we're doing here in gathering in the Lord's, Lord's Day as a family of God is hopefully to, for a moment, capture a word from God, to receive a vision of God that helps sustain us 
through the trials and tribulation helps give us that patient endurance as we continue forward. And so it's okay that, you know, I tune out in my own sermons when I'm preaching them. It's okay if you tune out from here, here and there on the sermon. The idea is we're gathering together in order to wait upon the Lord to begin to speak to us. That's worship. And that's the worship that John here, in one sense, is illustrating in this moment. Obviously, he has this remarkable moment of worship where he is now receiving, through the powerful word, he's going to be receiving a vision of what will take place. I remember a friend of mine, he, he was an uh, offensive lineman. Uh, in college, and as he approached his 40s, he's still a good friend of mine, but uh, he suffered from really bad back problems, really debilitating. And for about a year, he could not go to church. He, he really could hardly get out of bed. And I was trying to encourage him, and, and the doctors were trying to figure out what was wrong with him. And then finally, they figured out what was wrong with him, and he was able to go to church again. I remember those early phone calls. He was so excited. So excited as he was able to join in with the communion and fellowship of God. It was like a new conversion. This is a guy who had gone to seminary. Uh, He at one point thought he would be a pastor. And he had just realized that there's a uniqueness to the gathering, to the worship on the Lord's Day that uniquely benefits himself. And, And it provides us sustenance as the Lord's. So the Lord's Day comes with its benefits for those who are caught up in worshiping the Lord on that day. And God can meet us all uniquely in, to worship and speak to us, we who are members of his kingdom. So we're gathered here ultimately in worship to receive a word of encouragement from him, to get a, more of a vision of who Christ is, who Jesus is, what his word teaches us, and the truthfulness of his testimony. And why do we need such things on Lord's days? Because tribulation comes. Because starting with our Savior and moving on to the disciples, promised both in Revelation and throughout the New Testament, tribulation will find us. And so let us grow more closely with one another. Let us better understand the word of the one who is the only, who is the word made flesh. His word brings unity and a family unlike any other where, when in, in endurance when tribulation comes. Let us remember where the right side of history truly rests. That it doesn't rest in movements that are life-taking or not life-producing. But the right side of history belongs to the one who in all the forces of evil, hell, and this world itself, all the forces of wickedness uh, came alongside of him and came up against him. While for a moment... He might have had a bruised heel. Three days later, he rose yet again in triumph, revealed as the Lord our God, the hero of history. The Bible is really a story from beginning to end about God's family, God's unique family, a family who fell into sin from our first parents, and it's not really their fault. If we had been put in the same situation, we would have fallen just the same. And yet... The God, God offered us the hope of Christ. Upon Calvary, heaven broke into earth on a new way, a, vi- a new vision of adoption by God, as God's sons and daughters, has broken into history. And when we grab a hold of that, 
whether we be canceled by culture, exiled in Patmos, facing death, fear, anxiety, whatever it is, when we grab a hold of that vision, when we grab a hold of Calvary, when we understand what it cost our Lord to create this unique family, we'll be able to endure to the end. Amen? Let us pray. Father God, we thank you that here in a moment on an island where John was cast off, you decided to begin writing your last book of Scripture. That just as the Roman Empire of power and might believed it had gained the upper hand of Christianity, here you gave us a hope to hold on to until you come again. We thank you for this family you have called us into. We understand that being called into this family at times means suffering and sacrifice. And yet, help us to be ready for those moments because we have beheld the one who suffered for our sake, who endured the agonies of hell because he loved us and desired to make a place for us. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.